cultivating a thankful heart. Just exactly how you do that is the subject of our time today as you join us for this Sunday edition of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Sadly, because of the fall, our sinful nature, it's not natural for us to be thankful or grateful. Today, we will take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and see what it means to cultivate a thankful heart. We need to focus on God and not self, be submissive to God's sovereign purpose, and be overwhelmed, if you will, by God's sovereign grace. That's all straight ahead on today's broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Won't you join us? Again, 2 Samuel chapter 7. With today's broadcast, once again, here's Pastor Steve. So this morning, I just thought I'd share a little bit about cultivating a thankful heart. And uh, sometimes this is something that as Christians, we almost take for granted and what I mean by this is we have so much to be thankful for in so many different parts of our lives, whether it's our salvation, whether it's family, friends, Thanksgiving's coming up, so you'll be spending time, no doubt, with family and friends. That's a good thing, I hope, around the, the dinner table, keep the conversation positive. <laughs> but you know, a lot, of, a lot of Christians, I think, really struggle with the idea of not being grateful with Everything that God has uh, blessed us with. And in so many different parts of Scripture, just a way of introducing this, um, we're told that we should have hearts of thanksgiving. That we should be willing to have a, a spirit of thanksgiving in our hearts. In 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, the Apostle Paul writes this, He's, in verse 9, he says, we must, not, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Do not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. You can see God takes grumbling and ingratitude and things like that pretty seriously. We're going to be looking today in a portion of the Old Testament in Second Samuel, but we saw in Romans, as we were going through Romans, in chapter 1, remember that way back, I don't know how long ago that was, but Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 21, you notice it's talking about God's wrath upon the earth, on unrighteousness, and in verse 21 it says this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or what? What's it say? Give thanks. They didn't give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Sometimes we need to be reminded that our hearts should be thankful, that we should go through the exercise of being thankful on a daily basis. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul writes that we should give thanks, what, in everything. That was the theme of our, of our uh, peninsula praise the other night, of giving thanks. And not in everything only, but for all things. And see, as those who are delivered from the enemy, from the power of darkness in our lives, 
Colossians 1.12 says that we should joyously give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. And so it's so, so vital that we don't take our many blessings for granted. And as believers, we should have a spirit of thanksgiving. We should have a joy in our lives as a result of being believers and Christians, having our sins forgiven. Uh, David himself was called, what, a man after God's own heart, all right? And he was a thankful man. And so if you look back at 2 Samuel, all the way in the Old Testament there, 2 Samuel, and look at verse, or chapter 7, this kind of talks a little bit about thankfulness, this, this chapter. And uh, we want to look at how we can really produce a heart of thanksgiving, producing a thankful heart. Now, a little bit of background on David himself. David here basically consolidated his kingdom. He had brought the ark. He placed it in a tent in Jerusalem. He's built a palace for himself. And while all this war was going on with Israel's enemies, and they're not over yet, here in chapter 7, they kind of had a little breather in the fighting, a little break. And during this period of calm, David began to think, well, wait a minute. I'm dwelling in a palace, and God is dwelling in a tent. <laughs> What's wrong with this picture? There's something wrong here. And so David wanted to build, what, a house for God. That seems like a pretty no noble uh, desire. He wanted to, he felt maybe a little guilt. He's living in this palace and they're, you know, they're going to worship the God, their God in a tent. And they thought, well, wait, this doesn't seem right. And so his desire was to build a house for God. And at first, his friend, his prophet, Nathan, says, yeah, go ahead. It sounds like a good idea, David. Let's do it. But then as you read through this, and we can't go through the whole thing for time's sake, but that night, God spoke to that prophet, Nathan. And he said, you know what? I want you to prohibit David from building this house for God or the temple. But God also tells Nathan to tell David that God will build a house for David. And that David's house and kingdom will endure forever. Look at what it says in verse 16 of first, or 2 Samuel Chapter 7, it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This chapter deals with what we call the Davidic covenant. God promises that the Messiah will come from David's uh, ancestors, his, his descendants. And David's response was basically an incredible uh, gratitude to God. Now, you might think, well, who wouldn't be <laughs> giving thanks? I mean, here he is. He's a king, first of all, right? And uh, he's, God's giving him this promise. Why wouldn't he? But you have to really understand what's going on here. You have to recognize that David had this dream of building this temple for God. And what did God do? He squashed David's dream. I don't know if you're here this morning, you ever had one of your dreams squashed. <laughs> it's not a fun thing to go for, go through. 
And it was a very realistic dream for David. It wasn't something that he couldn't have done. I mean, David probably pictured this beautiful building and all these worshipers and the Lord being magnified and glorified and lifted up. He wanted to do this great work for God. And God said, you know what? No. You ever been there? You want to do something for God? And God just says, no. He shuts the door. Sometimes that's a hard place to be. And instead, he promised David something that David would not even see in his own lifetime. Something that was future. That the Messiah would come through his lineage. And that promise was not fulfilled until a thousand years later when Jesus Christ was born. And it really won't be totally fulfilled completely until the future millennial, millennial reign of Christ when he comes back to rule and reign on this earth. I mean, that should put David's perspective a little bit, uh, his thankfulness in a different light, you might say. Because, you know, if you've ever had God shut the door in your face, it's very easy to become disappointed. It's very easy to become discouraged. It's very easy to become disgruntled. It's very easy to become depressed. But he was overwhelmed with gratitude. And maybe David does have something to teach us here about thankfulness. Especially when God says no to our plans. And so, I wrote there in your outline, first of all, you must root You must be rooted in God's sovereign grace if you're going to have a thankful heart. A thankful heart comes from focusing on the sovereign grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on God the Father. See, David's focus was what? Upon himself? No, it was upon God. It was upon God's purpose. It was upon God's sovereign grace. And so there's three characteristics here of a a thankful heart, to cultivate a thankful heart. First of all, you have to focus on God and not yourself. That's a tough thing to do because we're all prone, right, to focus on ourselves. We're number one. It's what we want that matters. I mean, think of where David was at here. He was the king of Israel after years of, of hardship. He defended all these enemies from Israel. Here he was, established in this capital city, in this nice palace, comfortable. He was powerful. He was famous. He had a lot of servants. It was very easy for him to be self-focused. He could have got caught up with enjoying the good life. He could have had no concern for the things of God. But you know what? That wasn't his attitude. Instead, his thoughts, his actions, his attitude was turned toward the Lord and his purpose. The Bible says that he had a burden for God. He had a burden for God to be central in his nation. For God to be worshipped by, what, his people. And he wanted to build this temple, not just to look back and say what I've done. No, he wanted to build a temple which elevated the Lord to his proper place. And really, he didn't rest content while God's house was not a reality. It was always something in the back of his head. But David's heart was focused on God, not on his plans, not on his purpose, not on himself. So even when God said no to David's dream of building God's house, David was overwhelmed with gratitude for God's sovereign grace toward him. I think one of the reasons that we... One of the many reasons, really, that we as Christians suffer from being ungrateful is that we're so self-focused. We just can't get our minds off ourselves. 
We tend to pursue our own fulfillment. We tend to pursue our own comfort, our own happiness. I mean, the main dominant theology in American Christianity puts man and his happiness at the center. That's what it does. Instead of God and his glory. It all matters what I can get from it. Well, what's Jesus going to do for me? What felt needs is Jesus going to meet for me? Then maybe I'll consider your Jesus. And that even creeps into the church. You know, there's a theology out there that teaches this, that God exists to meet our needs. Have you ever heard this? Well, Christ died for us because we're worthy. Hello? I've heard evangelists say that. So we have people who really by nature are self-centered. They're coming to Christ to get the, quote, abundant life, (laughs) which they think is their right to have, which they somehow assume will fulfill all of their desires and all of their needs. And they've never been broken over their sin. They never once repented of their sin, especially the sin of their own self-centeredness. They think somehow God forgave them through Christ. And you know what? They deserved it. And then they become very disappointed when God doesn't do what they want them to do. (laughs) Or what they maybe think that he promised to do. See, we were, the problem with our, our churches today is they're filled with people who are there to get God to solve their problems. The only reason they're there is to, to get God to make them happy. That's it. Bottom line. I mean, do they want their problems solved so they can more effectively glorify and serve God? I don't think so. No, they want their problems solved so they can enjoy a happy, happy, happy life. Your best life now. See, unlike David, they have no burden for God. They have no burden for God's purpose. They have no burden for God's plan. They're only concerned about themselves. And to be honest, we all go there at times, right? But there are people that live there. Instead of being focused on God, they're focused on trying to get God to meet their own needs for their own gratification. They're focused on themselves. I mean, that's not what Jesus taught, beloved. When you look through the New Testament, that's the polar opposite of what Christ taught. Jesus never said, if anyone wants to follow me, I'll meet his every need. And so you can just live a happy, happy life if you just come and follow me. A life of blessing, a life of pure happiness. No, Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, if anyone wishes to follow me, let him first what? Deny himself. Why do you ever think why Jesus said that? Because he knew it was our first kind of proclivity to go after ourselves, to follow ourselves. To make ourselves number one. So he said, you want to follow me? Then you need to, first of all, deny yourself. And then secondly, in case you didn't understand the first part, take up your cross. The cross wasn't the little gold thing you ring around your neck. It was an instrument of death. If you saw a man back in Jesus' day carrying a cross, you knew within hours he was going to be dead. He was subject to a condemning, horrible death on a cross. He said, so if you want to follow me, first deny yourself and then take up your cross and then you can follow me. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. See, our logic doesn't work 
in that environment. We can't get our mind around that. You mean, okay, wait, if I try to save my life, I'll lose it. But if I just give up my life, then I'll save it. Yes, that's what he's saying. See, if somehow we can get that into our heads every day when we get out of mornings, just say, Lord, you know what? It's not what I want today, but it's what you want. And if it's not what I want, I'm okay with that because you know best. You got a plan and a purpose for me today. Lord, just help me to walk in that plan, whether I like it or not. See, that's the kind of prayer we need to be praying every day. See, if you want to be a thankful person, you have to get your focus off yourself. You have to get your focus off your own happiness. You have to put your focus on what? God, on his purpose and his great purpose through the gospel. If we focus on God, if we focus on his purpose, you know what? He's going to meet your needs. He's going to graciously do that. If we focus on self, what happens? We come up empty. We come up empty every time. I mean, I can't count the times, so many times, where it's been like, wow, you know, the checkbook's not adding up. (laughs) And it's like, you know what? I just continue to trust God. And you know what? He always comes through. Always. So you have to focus on God, not yourself. Secondly, you have to be willing to be submissive to God's sovereign purpose. This kind of goes along with the first one when you think about it. I mean, here's David. He wants to build this temple for God, not for himself. And God says no. Reminded of a friend in college. All he wanted to do was be a missionary. All he wanted to do was give up his life and go to a foreign field and be a missionary. You know what? He never got to do that. Never got to do it. Luckily, he was grounded in the word. He had his heart submissive to God's sovereign purpose. And even though that was his number one desire, that's what he went to school with. He ended up teaching at a little Bible college out in the middle of nowhere. Guess what he taught? He taught missions, which was kind of like a double-edged sword if you think about it. Always wanted to do this. And he had to teach all these kids that were going out to the mission field, hearing about all their stories, and he never got to go. I remember years later, I talked to him one time on the phone, and I said, hey, how'd that mission thing ever work out? You're not going to believe it. He said, I think I've had more effect on the mission field just training these kids, even though my desire is still to go. (laughs) Why? Because he was submissive to God's sovereign purpose. It didn't matter what he wanted. See, it's not like David was desiring something that was wrong here. You know, I mean, sometimes we get off on the wrong track. We want something that's fleshly and sinful, and, you know, we know that God doesn't want us to have it. But here, David is wanting something that's positive. It's something that's good. He didn't want something for himself. He didn't want a new addition to his palace. (laughs) That's not what he was asking God for. He didn't want more money. He wanted to build a house for God. And because he was a man after God's own heart, his motives were pure. But God said no. Now, it's true that God wrapped his no with a bunch of other promises <laughs> that were pretty nice promises. But nevertheless, he didn't get to do what he wanted to do. What did David do in response? One commentator says, well, let's think, first of all, what he could have done. But he didn't do. What could have David's response have been, but it wasn't? He could have allowed this disappointment to grow to a point of depression. He could have locked himself in his palace and said, you know what? I'm done. 
God, I wanted to do something for you. I thought it was the right thing. Everybody else thought it was the right thing. And you said no. I quit. He could have sulked. He could have felt sorry for himself. Could have had a kind of attitude. We've probably all been there. You know, Lord, you see if I ever try to do anything for you again. Have you ever been there? I have. <laughs> he could have turned to all the pleasures of his palace. He could have been, become so self-indulgent just to soothe his hurt feelings, his disappointed heart. But instead, what did he do? He worshiped God. He was overwhelmed with gratitude for all that God had done on his behalf. He submitted to God's sovereign purpose, and he was willing to be used however God wanted to use him. See, the key to David's response is seen in the way David viewed God, how he viewed himself in God's sight. Look at Verse 18 in 2 Samuel 7. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And what did he say? Hey, who do, you th- who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? No, he said, Who am I, O Lord? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Look at verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Notice the words he's using there. Look at verse 20. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Look at verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. There is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Look at verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant. Look at verse 28. And now, O Lord God, are you getting the picture? Verse 29. For you, O Lord God. See, in this short prayer here, David calls God, O Lord God. What's that mean? It means sovereign Lord. He's acknowledging that God is in control. He's not. And he also just raises up, he extols the God's great in verse 22, verse 26. We already read verse 22, verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever. Verse 27, for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. See, he goes on and on, and he magnifies the name of Lord of the Lord. And he also understands the sovereign choice of Israel as God's people in verse 23, 24. In this text, it's interesting because David refers to himself not as the king, <laughs> but as what? Your servant. Isn't that interesting? He does it in verse 19. He does it in 20, 21, 25, 26, 27 twice, 28, and 29 twice. See, David wasn't caught up in his title. He wasn't caught up in who he was. He wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on God. And he was submissive to God's sovereign plan. Why? Because he saw God as the sovereign of the universe. And he saw himself simply as God's servant, a tool that God could use. So therefore, he could commit himself, submit himself and, and be thankful when God's plans maybe ran contrary to his own plans. Let me ask you this morning, what do you do? 
when God's plans run contrary to your plans. See, the, the, the test of thankfulness, beloved, is not when God does what you want him to do. That's not a test. The test of thankfulness is when God says no to your plans. Even when those plans are maybe to further his purpose. They're not bad plans. They may be good plans. They may be honoring plans to him. But he says no to them. To be thankful when you've got to see God as the sovereign and yourself as his servant. So that you submit to him. Because you realize he's God and what? You're not. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.